You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, we just did this on Friday. Yeah, man. What we, the hell's going on? We should be uh, uh, up to speed, I would think, you know? Or fatigued. Yeah, fatigue makes a different person out of all of us. That's right. I know that. But, I mean, we should be in the uh, in the swing of things. We should be ready to rock and roll. Well, and then, as I'm sure we're going to discuss, big press conference planned for Tuesday, and we're already feeling the pressure to do another special edition of the co-main event. I think sometimes people forget that we do have actual jobs, and they are not this. We don't get paid for this. Yeah, uh, and I also think people overestimate how much they like us. Yeah, like, they don't. You don't want that, that as much of this as you think. You that's do. right. People are always like, "Man, you should do like four hours of podcast. You should do it every day." And I'm just like, "Man, our wives don't even like us that much." No, absolutely not. What are we doing here? See, we should be doing a better job already. I'm already, <laughs> I'm already screwing this up. Fatigue. The fatigue's all over your face. But my brawl ability is strong. Though. You're so high on the Coleman index right now. Ben, this week's music comes to us from listener Anthony Kills, which I assume is not his real name, but maybe his punk rock name. I hope it's his real name. And his band Nim Vind. I'm sorry, what? Nim Vind. Spell it. N-I-M, new word, capital V-I-N-D. That's what I was afraid it was. Their album Saturday Night Seance Songs is available on iTunes and Amazon, and if you like what they what you hear from them, you can go to their website nimvindmusic.com can you give me a hint as to genre uh you're just gonna have to listen to it it's pretty rock and roll it's a little bit fast uh melodic i would say <laughs> okay good you getting uh you getting the gist yeah at this no, you point? should be a music reviewer three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast in round number one it's an exciting time for the straw weight division a champion is crowned a fan favorite shifts into rebuilding mode and we have a number one contender whose name absolutely no person on the planet of earth can pronounce and in round number two that nate diaz kid man he'll break your heart and in round number three, matchmakers rolled the dice last weekend with three heavyweight fights on the main card of UFC on Fox 13, and somehow they were all kind of awesome. Go figure. Huh. All that plus Master Tweet Theater, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Tyler Pebley, or Tyler Peebly. One B in the last name, so it could cut either way. How many E's? Two E's. Peebly. P-E, but it's, but see, it's P-E-B-L-E-Y. Pebbly. Pebbly. But it could be Peebly. No, it's Pebbly. All right, we'll go with Pebbly. He writes, Paul Harris's knee bar on Fitch wasn't as egregious as his other submissions, but it still looked like Fitch was injured and had to be helped out of the cage. At what point does an athletic commission see there might be a pattern and refuse to allow a fighter to fight in their state? I know heel hooks and knee bars are quote unquote allowed in MMA, but if they are causing injury when used a certain by a certain guy, doesn't that raise a red flag? Uh, boy, Ben, you got to, uh, 
I guess you got to give it up to Rusmar Paul Harris at this point. Um, he has an established reputation as a guy who holds on to submissions too long. He was uh, ousted from the UFC for being too dangerous. Uh, too real. He comes over to the World Series of Fighting, um, continues to appear to hold his submission holds for kind of an uncomfortable amount of time. Uh, catches a ton of flack for it. His coaches come out and they're like, we're going to take care of it. Like he, you know, sometimes he can't help himself. And then in this most recent fight against John Fitch this last weekend, I would agree with the emailer. I would agree with Tyler Pebley that, uh, it didn't seem as egregious. I don't know that I would say that what he did was illegal, but man, he waits for the referee to physically pry his arms off John Fitch's legs before he lets go. He wants to be real sure that these fights are over yeah. before he lets go of the submission. Yeah, he walked right up to the line on this one. The thing I was wondering is, would we say anything if he had no track record whatsoever with doing that? Like, would we look at that, look back at this submission and be like, you know, if this is the first time it had ever happened with Rusmar Balharas, would we be like, hey, man, what the hell? What was that? I don't know if we would. Uh, I think, and I think that's a good litmus test kind of to tell whether we should be worked up about this one. I think that it would be one of those things where people would be like, you know, you could have let go a little sooner, but we can't really be mad at you. Right. Um, but I do think that when you consider it in light of all his other stuff, you're just like, man, you really are walking a fine line right now. And it's also a sign, I think, that it makes you wonder if he's learned the appropriate lessons from the other stuff. Because man, you're so you're so close to to doing it one more time and being the guy who gets run out of the sport for winning fights in an awesome and terrifying fashion, which would just be incredible, man. Like you can't let that happen to you. Like come on, right. you got to get it together at that point. It's the I, prying motion, I think that you really right. there is one distinct prying. There's like he puts his hands on him, and then there's a uh, kind of like a get your arms off of that guy, and like. And especially and was, remember last time it took two jerks by yeah. the referee to free to free up the submission hold. This time only one jerk. So it's like he dialed it back like a half a percent. Yeah. I also wonder because Fitch was down for a while. I haven't heard any update on how Fitch is doing, but he was down there, seemed to be in pain with his knee there for a little while. It's it's also it's tough to say because especially with a knee bar and in a fight like that, he's not gonna want to quit. And knee bars are one of those things where like you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, ow, oh shit. Uh, so who's to say that it's like the extra hold that gets him? Like for all, for all we know, as soon, if he let go as soon as the referee moved in and put his hands on him, Fitch might still be down there holding his knee and, and going through whatever he's going through with it now. But we just don't know because of that, like because of that, that combination of his past, the, the prying motion from the referee and Fitch laying down there holding onto his knee like he's hurt. That all adds up to have us, you know, kind of give an old Husamar the side eye here and like, man, did you just do this again? Yeah, I saw on Twitter earlier today that John Fitch is going to the doctor and he thinks he has a torn PCL. So that's the latest update that I saw. Um, I agree with you. I don't think this would be a situation where we would make a huge deal out of it if, if this guy didn't have Rusmar Paul Harris's reputation. But the fact is he does have his reputation. And it's like, if your buddy has two DUIs, uh, you're going to look at him a little bit differently if he has two or three beers and says he's going to drive home than yes. you would your buddy who's never had a DUI, who has a couple of pops, soda pops, and then says he's, he's going to drive home. Uh, and at this point, I'm just wondering if we're going to find out that maybe like 
Rusmar Palharis's dad was killed by a man who he had in a submission hold, <laughs> but then he allowed, he let go too soon, and the guy stood up and like pulled out a samurai sword. I assume Rusmar Palharis's father was some sort of samurai yeah. who got his head chopped off. Yeah, he was knee on a guy with a sword, and but because of the knee bar, the guy couldn't get to the sword. Right. The guy tapped. He let go. The guy got up and chopped his head off. Exactly. That's what I think happened. All right. That's my hypothesis. Yeah. That I mean. It sounds so reasonable. We sh- we have to assume that it's true. That it's true. You're right. Uh, well, this is something that we've talked about before. That this kind of uh, uh, dangerous, like black hat persona that Rusmar Palharis has kind of works for him. That he, you know, maybe aside from Justin Gaethje, he's one of the only guys that World Series of Fighting has that when he fights, you got to tune in to watch it. Oh yeah, and absolutely. The re- and the reason you got to tune in to watch is that you don't know what he's going to do. Yeah. No, I mean that's the thing too. We were talking about this uh, on Twitter before. Because it's it's something I talked to uh, Ray Sifu about when I was in uh, Vegas, you know, and he's rolling in there to the gym, and we're like, man, how do you like how do you stand out? Because the UFC is kind of occupying almost every weekend with the show between the UFC and Bellator. World Series of Fighting has a real challenge just letting people know, hey, we have a show tonight too. Like, and this is same one with this one. I mean, we were talking about it on Twitter, and you could see people being like, oh wait, that's tonight. The, the Fitzball Harris thing that's tonight? Oh man, like that's a, a real problem for you if you're World Series of Fighting. So I guess they're in no position to really even threaten to fire the guy if he keeps hurting people because you need, you need a guy who for whatever reason people are like, I gotta see this. And that's what you have in him, you know? I mean, I just, you kind of wish that, uh, he'd maybe ease back on it maybe 10 or 15%. Maybe ride on the, the wave of the weird shit he's already done instead of doing new weird shit to, because, you know, it's not, it's not great for that to be the topic coming out afterwards. Right. The topic should be, oh my God, he keeps doing this to people, like the, the actual submission part, getting leg lock submissions right. on people who know. That right. That's, he did it in like a minute and a half against John Fitch, yes. like where he picks up a single leg, uh, you know, and you know the lifelong wrestler Fitch is looking at it going like, oh, no way. Ain't no way this Brazilian jiu-jitsu dude is single leg and John Fitch. Oh no, I got this. And then the guy drops to his back and grabs you in a, in a heel, uh, heel hook and then a knee bar and submits you. And like, damn it. That's yeah. Just- and I think that's, that speaks to how good he is, right? And yeah, it's incredible. Here's a guy in Rusmar Paul Harris who had previously fought at middleweight and was not a terrible middleweight. Uh, he was a pretty good middleweight actually. Uh, but decides that he's going to make the cut down to 170. And since then, um, he hasn't done it all against guys. He's had what three fights at, at welterweight, I think something like that, three or four. He hasn't done it all against guys who have been maybe a list, uh, competitors, but he's looked super unstoppable. And even though John Fitch has, you know, been maybe on the downside of his career for the last couple of years after, after leaving the UFC, it's still impressive to tap John Fitch out in like a minute and a half or two minutes because that's something nobody does. Well, and this is something we were talking about last night over beers. Uh, I mean, does, does Pajara submit Robbie Lawler? Maybe that's, he does. That's what I'm, that's what I was just about to get to. Like, as we sit here today, I could not tell you definitively that Rusmar Balharas would not tap Robbie Lawler out or for that matter, Johnny Hendricks. I mean, I think because of the kind of weird situation you have right now at welterweight where George St. Pierre has gone away and, and, uh, now we have, uh, we, we kind of lack a dominant welterweight on the scene right now. And, and as an emailer said last week, it seems like maybe the UFC welterweight division is going to kind of pass the title around for a little while. I don't think there's anything saying that Rusmar Pajaris might not be. I mean, I think he has a chance that he's the best welterweight in the world right now. And that's a weird thing 
for World Series of Fighting to have because I don't know how much they're going to be able to do with it. Yeah. Well, and it also makes you wonder, I guess, last thing before we move on from this is, say you're the UFC and you're seeing, you know, hey, I see you over there, Husamar, shaking that ass. I see what you're doing. I, You know, we respect what you're able to do over there in World Series of Fighting. We're thinking about maybe letting bygones be bygones, letting you come back over here and, and take your shot at the top. And, and who knows, man, you know, you're you're obviously really good at this. Maybe you can you can be the champ just based on leg lock submissions. But then you see the ref have to make that prying motion on, on John Finch. Yeah, it's weird. And then you start to think, I don't know if we're willing to risk it. I don't know if the guy has learned the lessons that we were hoping he would learn by now. All right, next question this week comes to us from Mark O. He writes, I know you want to talk about the alleged impending lawsuit that fighters are allegedly about to file against the UFC, so go ahead and talk the talk, my guys, exclamation point. So I assume Mark O, native Brazilian since he refers to us as my guys at the end. Well, okay, but when you read it like Marco, it sounds like he's definitely a native Brazilian, but it, it's the way actually I'm seeing it spelled Mark, out here is Mark O. O. Right, yeah. Well, um, let's just say Marco, because I think that's more in keeping with the spirit of his email. Okay, fine. Uh, yeah, so obviously, and he, he includes a link here to the, the Bloody Elbow story, uh, and uh, this is something that... Uh, I know that uh, we have some some stuff working on this story, and it's been in the works for a long time. Uh, there was an email sent out recently, uh, earlier today, then announcing that they're going to have a press conference tomorrow, of course, the day after the CME drops, because that's how the MMA universe do. Uh, somebody must have filled them in on the, the calendar details there, uh, to kind of announce what this lawsuit is exactly and who's involved. Because right now, I mean, the one thing, you know, the, the bloody elbow story I thought was interesting, but there's, there's no specifics in it at all. Like, it doesn't really tell you anything other than, like, this, something is about to happen. Um, and basically come back in the future and read more stories about what's going to happen. Like it's just, the USC is going to get sued by unnamed parties working with unnamed law firms. Uh, so we still don't really know anything yet. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, I have every confidence in, uh, Brookhouse and Nash, the two guys over at, at Bloody yeah. Elbow. I, I, I fully believe and, and have every confidence that they did a lot of legwork on this story and that, um, you know, the stuff that they said in, in their, in their article is probably going to come to pass. Uh, but you're right. It didn't have a ton of specifics in there. It didn't have, uh, you know, any sources yet that, w- that weren't anonymous. So, and, and frankly, that's why we, we bumped this story into listener mail this week because, you know, previous to the announcement of the press conference, which just happened an hour or two ago, uh, there wasn't really a ton that we could say. There wasn't really a ton that we could sink our teeth into since the report itself did seem like kind of a placeholder or just like a, uh, you know, it did like come back later, tune in later to find out more specifics. So there wasn't a lot of stuff to be said about it. Now, uh, I guess you can kind of see maybe why they decided to go to press with this story before they had, uh, a, a lot of people on the record talking about it. If they knew that the, this announcement of the filing was going to come out today, or at least the announcement of a press conference was going to come out today. Uh, either that or the opposite thing happened that the, the people filing the lawsuit decided to go forward with a public announcement after the story came out. We'll uh, never know. I don't think it's the second one. I think it's more the first one because I know that uh, Stephen Morocco for us has been working on some stuff for this for a while. Um, so, yeah, this is not – it's not exactly a, a, a huge secret that this has been in the works for some time. But you also just don't know how it's going to go, right? I mean we are far from legal experts. The closest thing we, we are to legal experts is that you sleep with a lawyer. That's right. Uh, Damn straight. <laughs> Every night, Jack. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I, 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 it's hard for me to even begin to speculate on where this thing is going to go. One of the like thought experiments I was running through when we heard about this is, 
you know, what if this is as huge and as like game changing, uh, to, to borrow their, their quote there, uh, as we're told that it's hundreds of millions of dollars and a bunch of plaintiffs in a, in a class action lawsuit against the UFC. That sounds like the kind of thing that could just like wreck the UFC, right? Or at least drive it into like a shadow of its former self. Uh, I mean, not that the courts necessarily need consider this, but would that be good for this sport? Yeah, hard, really hard to tell. In fact, I mean, it's hard to say anything about this until we find out specifics of actually what's going on. Uh, but I, it could be a game changer. Uh, it, it could break either way, man. It, it could be good for, for fighters and good for, uh, fighters representatives and their families. It, it could be, uh, bad for the UFC. And, and I think you bring up a, a valid, uh, point. Like if, if that company got driven out of business, like what would, uh, what would the landscape of mixed martial arts look like? Uh, not necessarily even driven out of business. Like, what if they decided to sell? Uh, and and uh, it would seem like a bad time to sell. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, the, anything that's that's what I'm. It's just a crazy situation. It's impossible to say what would happen or what the uh, ramifications would be, and whether or not it would be positive or negative. I feel like there would be a lot of opportunity for good and bad to happen. Uh, but we were talking about this last night. That that uh, you know. What if a crazy turn of events occurred where suddenly your two most powerful guys in the sport were Scott Coker and Tito Ortiz, right? Because they're over there running Bellator on Spike TV, and 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 uh, you know that would be kind of a storybook ending for those guys. But I don't know where it leaves the the industry, right? <laughs> I just imagine like Scott Coker coming back to the office from a long lunch. He's 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 still he's carrying his his the the second half of his Quizno sandwich that he's going to eat later. And uh, come bopping back into the office about one thirty, and they tell him he's now the most powerful man in MMA, and uh, the look on his face like, yeah, I knew, I knew this all along. It's co- <laughs> it's Coker time. <laughs> Hashtag Coker time. But again, the time is Coker. Uh, it's I think it's impossible. You know, much like we talked about last week with the uh, the Reebok deal, it's kind of impossible to say how it's going to go until we we see some specifics. And and with any luck, maybe we'll get to see some tomorrow. I don't know. Yeah. And uh, no, we're not going to do a special podcast just for that. Next question this week comes to us from Heather Philby. She writes, my guy, Leoto the Dragon Machida, is about to fight your guy, Clarence Byron Dalloway IV, on television, but I'm feeling too lazy right now to figure out exactly which channel. I think I speak for all <laughs> fight fans when I say, what? Does this make any sense? Isn't Machida supposed to fight the best? Is Dalloway the best? Is the middleweight class ready for his sneering lip to be accepted as a top contender? Discuss. She puts a Z there in discuss. I, I like it. I see yeah. what you did there. So yeah, I, I'm gonna, Ben, I gotta, I'm gonna give you a personal confession here. Uh, as this Monday morning started, I didn't even know that we were dealing with a UFC uh, fight night event until I looked at the calendar, frankly, over on the MMA junkie, shameless plug, and saw that, oh yeah, we are in fact dealing with another Saturday night of fights where uh, Leota Machida is going to fight CB Dalloway. And I would also agree with Heather Philby, this is a weird, and I think this struck us all as kind of a weird stroke of matchmaking because uh, CB Dalloway is one of those guys that's been around for a long time and one of those guys that I think, frankly, we've started to think we've already seen what he's capable of. And so it's it's hard for us to um, you know, c- concede the notion that he is suddenly going to jump up and become an A-list top contender in the middleweight division. Uh, on the other hand, I think the guy's like four and one in his last five fights, and his one loss is uh that kind of c- very close, controversial split decision to Tim Boach. So, like, if he goes out and beats Leota Machida, well, shit, 
I guess we're not going to have any choice but to regard him as as uh, a, a guy who's faux real at the top of the middleweight division. Yeah, I, and I guess then we'll all have to, you know, just find some way to reconcile our normal feelings about CB Dalloway and his sneering lip with uh, what he's actually done. However, you, I just looked at the odds for this one. Uh, Machida's about a six to one favorite. Really, so, yeah, six to one. It does not Goodness seem like, gracious. like too many people are, are counting on, uh, you know, the blue blood uh, Clarence Byron Dalloway coming out with a win here. Uh, you know, I guess it's one of those things usually the UFC likes to match up like winners against winners from past fights, you know, and this is one where, you know, Machida had put together a couple wins, lost in his title bid, and then, you know, Dalloway's on a two fight streak against guys, you know, much lower on the pecking order, you know, Frankie Cars, basically. Uh, and so I guess in that sense, it does, it does kind of make sense, right? Like Machida has to kind of take a step back there. If you're the UFC, you don't really want to put him in a position where he can knock off somebody you're excited about as a potential contender at middleweight. And let's face it, he has a very real potential to knock off just about every other middleweight contender out there right now. Um, so hell, why not put him against somebody like CB Dalloway, who you, you probably aren't sure what to do with anyway? Cause like you said, if Dalloway wins, well, then, hell, man, now we all got to start taking him seriously. Uh, and that would be a huge, you know, just landscape-changing boost for him in the middleweight division. If Machida wins, all right, we're kind of still where we thought yeah, we were. we still got Machida. Uh, yeah, no, I, it's, uh, it's, it was unexpected, but I don't know that it was a bad piece of matchmaking. It actually uh, seems like uh, kind of a useful one, really, uh, to hear it described that way. Um, let's do one more before we move on. Right. The, the last question this week comes to us from... Yoni Samuel Siegel. Nailed it. I recently went to my first live UFC event with my two sons. We headed to Austin to see the Edgar, Swan Edgar Swanson fight night. Since the Rogan Schaub intervention, you guys have talked and written a lot about the role of the fight fan in enabling guys to inflict so much harm on themselves. And I'm hoping to get your thoughts on a well-represented element of fan I encountered at the show that I didn't expect. These were the, quote, I want to see blood, guys. My boys and I practice martial arts, and while none of us have competed in the cage, we understand and appreciate the sport and technique. I was expecting most other fans in attendance to be looking for the same, but most of what I heard were cries that the action was boring. If there wasn't a lot of, if there wasn't a loss of consciousness, flowing blood, or a dislocated joint, many of the paying customers around me were loudly voicing their displeasure. I came away a little disheartened. In our discussion surrounding the, surrounding fighter safety and fans' roles, are we giving too much credit to the average fight fan? Does Joe Q public recently just, or really just want to attend the gladiator tournaments uh, to see someone get smashed, consequences be damned? I'm going to say yes. Yeah. And you know what? I've kind of thought about a lot about this recently uh, just because I feel like there's kind of a divide about what this sport actually is and what this sport could be and the way that the sport has long been marketed and maybe because of how it was marketed, maybe because of, of just the fan base that it appeals to kind of the culture that has sprung up around mixed martial arts, because I agree with the, the emailer. And if you go to a live UFC show uh, or frankly, a live MMA show of any uh, level like because you get a lot of this at the small time uh, local show as well yeah um if you go to any of those shows you're all there's always a lot of people uh who are there seemingly out of this kind of bloodlust and 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 people i'm gonna go ahead and describe them as meatheads 
maybe. Okay. Uh, who, who shout stuff at the cage and chant boring and they, they want to see a slugfest. They want to see knockouts and all that. And, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with appreciating that side of the sport, but I've always found it to be kind of limiting in terms of, uh, uh, what mixed martial arts is really all about and, and, you know, what it can be as a sport. Because, you know, if you got into the sport a really long time ago, like, like you and I both did, I feel like you wouldn't get, even though it, even then it was marketed as kind of a blood sport, you, you couldn't get into it unless you appreciated the nuance, kind of. Because back in those days, like, that's kind of all there was. Like, <laughs> yes. you, you would, you would have a, uh, a striker or a boxer come out looking for a knockout, but more often than not, he would get taken down by Hoist Gracie and, and, you know, tapped out with a triangle choke or something like that. So like you had to be into the, that, that aspect of the sport to really invest yourself in it. And I feel like, uh, you know, over the last decade or so, maybe that's changed a little bit in the way that, that the sport is marketed and like the, the fan expectations. Well, I feel like also you have to, realize that when you're going to a live event, particularly in a city where the UFC doesn't go a bunch, you're not necessarily dealing with the audience that you think you are. I think there you underestimate the amount of people who will go to a live UFC event just because they hear it some shit in town. They're kind of vaguely familiar with it. Oh, hell, like I'll, I'll go get tickets to that. I think that happens a lot more than people realize. I mean, when I remember uh, when I was in Chicago in January for that uh, UFC on Fox event, and I was out at a bar the night before, and these guys were talking about how they were going to go to the fights. And I was like, oh, yeah, really? You're going to the fights? Like, which one are you the most excited for? Something along those lines. And they're like, oh, I don't, I don't have any idea who's fighting. I just, I just got tickets because, you know, that seemed like a cool thing to do. I think that happens a lot more at the live shows than you realize. I think if, like, the audience that's sitting around in living rooms watching pay-per-views, uh, I think is way more uh, the kind of people we – think of when we think of fight fans like way more into the the sport the nuance uh that kind of stuff i think that the live crowd draws a kind of different element that don't necessarily follow the sport that don't don't read any websites about it that don't really know what what's up but they just you know they've seen ufc before it's violence it's fun i'm gonna buy a ticket let's go and shout and yell and i've heard people i've heard people been walking around the vegas strip and people have been like so what do you want to do tonight? A carrot top or you want to try and get tickets to that UFC thing that's going on in town? Like, I think there's more of that than we assume because to us, it's super important. Like, it's a big part of our lives. And so we're, we're really engaged with it. Uh, I would say, though, to, to Yoni Samuel Siegel, don't get discouraged by that because I don't think that's necessarily so different than anything. You just you hold martial arts a little more dear than most people. But it's like. Man, go to an NFL game and do a poll to see how many people can explain to you how a three-four defense works. Yeah, uh, you know that, or you know, pull a, a movie crowd. Like when you go to the movies and start to ask, like go row by row and ask everybody what their favorite movie is, and uh, you know, hear them say some dumb shit and then feel discouraged that oh, these aren't real film fans the way I am. Like that's fine. Like that's that's kind of how it works. You're not in this because every one of these, like, you know, 15,000 people in the arena is going to be your friend. You're in this because every once in a while, you know, you meet somebody who's a like-minded individual and you both can nerd out over this stuff. I mean, that to me is what kind of makes it more fun is that when you, when you find those people, those, those people who are kind of on the same wavelength with it as you are, um, then you're both dorks together. And that's a lot of fun discouraging and surprising number of people at, at movie theaters laughing at the commercials. Have you ever noticed that? You know, they, they show commercials before the previews now, like, 
weird percentage of people in the theater just thinking the commercials are are awesome yeah. i've always thought or like uh the one time when we made a mistake of watching a pro wrestling event wrestlemania in a bar in canada oh yeah that was uh, actually kind of awesome because there was a lot of people shouting stuff at the screen like he's cheating yeah or like open I, your eyes raf i hate that guy he's so arrogant and you're like oh, okay you're the people who they're thinking about when they're making some of these pro wrestling scripts yeah, and I would, uh, I would also agree with your point to not get discouraged because, frankly, somebody's got to carry the fire, right, <laughs> for civilization. Right, yeah. Very good point. Uh, well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or a concern you want to email to the co-main event podcast for future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. All right, Ben. Well, let's just get this out of the way right off the top. Joanna Yunjechik. Hmm. Joanna really? Yunjechik. I don't know. How do you say it? How would you say it? Are you- because I noticed on the uh, on the UFC on Fox broadcast this past weekend, uh, a lot of different people saying this name a lot of different ways. See, when I hear you say it, I feel like I should call an ambulance. Like you're ill. Are you? Are you okay? I'm I'm fine. I'm just saying there's a lot of different pronunciations going on on this one, and I'm not sure if I should take uh, the 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 word of Mike Goldberg, who also when he nope. says the name Claudia Godella, sounds like he becomes like Mario and Luigi. He's like <laughs> Cloja, like dude. <laughs> Nova, ow. I mean, at what point in trying to give someone's name an authentic pronunciation does it just become ridiculous? Yeah. Because yeah. there's a video, there's actually a video on YouTube of Joanna Yunjechuk where a Polish person tries to tell you how to pronounce the name, and it does not help. Because <laughs> I watched it a bunch of times before we recorded this, and I was like, my mouth does actually not make those noises. Clearly what we need here is a nickname. Well, she wants it to go, she wants to be JJ, she said. I, I think JJ is perfectly acceptable. All right, well, let's just start there. So JJ comes out and uh, wins... Uh, a pretty close split decision victory over Claudia Gadella uh, at UFC on Fox 13 this past weekend. And so now you would assume at at 8-0, she's the number one contender for uh, Carla Esparza, who beat Rose Namajunas at the tough the night before at the tough 20 finale. Yes. So Why not? A lot of hand, a lot of mouthfuls yeah. going on in that sentence. Well, Carla Esparza, I mean, I feel like you can handle that. Yeah, one. we nailed that one. Yeah. But Joanna Yunjechik. Whole different ball of wax. There. JJ. Uh, the name is spelled J E D R Z E J C Z Y K. So <laughs> I didn't even make that up. That's actually how it's spelled. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, that, Let's let, back up. Let's talk about yes. Asparza beating Rose Namajunas in the finale of, of uh, the Ultimate Fighter season 20 to become the first UFC strawweight champion. Uh, a lot of people were, were riding the Rose Namajunas train before this before this event went down. Um, first round was pretty close, and then after that, uh, Carla Esparza's wrestling kind of took over, uh, and she ended up winning by uh, rear naked choke in the third, right? Right. Okay. 
Yeah, so uh, uh, she was came in the more experienced fighter. She was regarded as the number one 115-pound woman in the world before uh, Tough was, was filmed, but Rose obviously is really, really well-liked, I think, by people, and I think you can see why when you watch her fight. Uh, but uh, well, I also think you can see a ton of potential there. Yeah, I, I mean, know. She's, she's 22 years old. Like she's, she's only had a few pro fights. So she's definitely, uh, even though, as I said at the beginning of the show, in rebuilding mode now, like, you know, all is far from lost. I feel like she's right. going to go on being uh, a, a big time fan favorite. And it, it certainly is not out of the realm of possibility that she she puts it back together to, you know, win the title or become a title challenger again in the future. Here's where I got worried for Rose Namajunas. Watching the pre-fight package. Oh, I know where this is going. <laughs> I, I felt the exact same way. Watching the pre-fight package, and she says something along the lines of how, you know, she didn't really focus too much on wrestling because she's never going to be as good a wrestler as Carlos. She's never going to catch up, basically, to where Carlos Barza is because of her wrestling experience, which... Concerned me for two reasons. I was watching it with my wife, and my wife was like, wait a minute. Did she just say she didn't do any wrestling? And I was like, you know, I don't know if she said she didn't do any, but it is troubling to hear uh, that she just kind of wrote off that aspect of the game. At least, you know, to hear in her own telling of it. I'm sure she did some wrestling in training camp. But the idea that you'd just be like, all right, this person is really good at this one thing that, you know, coincidentally allows them to decide where the fight takes place and basically allows them to to set it up to to decide everything else about the fight. Um, I'm not going to be as good at that person as that, so screw it. I'll be good at these other things, which, man, that doesn't really work for, for wrestling because if you, if you kind of, like, just... Uh, let them have that part of the game, it means you're basically starting on your back. Right. Um, As we said a minute ago, that's sort of what like the first 10 years of this sport's history right. taught us, Yeah. right? Well, you know, one of the things that I was trying to think like, okay, you know, maybe it came out wrong or something. Um, but for one thing, you don't want to say I'll never catch up to her on the wrestling department. Hey, come on. Maybe 10 years, you catch up. Who knows? Uh, but also, like... In one hand, I'm like, all right, maybe that can work because maybe if you're just, if you tell yourself, I think some people make this mistake and they go into a fight with wrestlers where they say they spend so much time drilling takedown defense in camp and saying like, I'm not going to get taken down, I'm not going to get taken down. This person is not going to be able to to do that shit to me. I've drilled so hard that I'm going to be able to stay up on my feet. And for one thing, you don't want to get entirely defensive. I've heard I talked to a bunch of different MMA coaches about that where they say you don't want to get in such a mindset where you're thinking so much about what the other person does that you're just entirely reactive because you know you're not out there to defend. You're out there to get after somebody and kick their ass so you want to think about what you want to do but also if you do get taken down when you've been just telling yourself that mantra over and over again then when you hit your back for the first time or the first couple times you might think well shit and get demoralized whereas yeah. if you tell yourself like hey i'm probably going to get taken down at some point what i'm going to work on is either attacks from the bottom or getting back up then okay i mean i can see how that might be a little bit of a viable strategy however you got to be able to do that I'm actually going to say that I'm not worried about what they bring to the table. I'm only worried about what I what I can do is one of the uh, emerging sports cliches of our time. Because yeah. that's like – and that's a big one in fighting. Like that's one of the ones that's often used. Like it, it cuts down on a lot of the 
questions that you can ask people to try to get an answer. Right. Right. Like as if and yeah, we're, frankly, we're, that way. we're running out yeah. at this point. <laughs> but like that's that's a that's a big one right now. And you know what? To, to Rose's credit, she did a good job in the first round uh, getting up off her back. Like Carla Esparza took her down, I think, three times in that first yeah. round. And the last one was with like 10 seconds to go in the round. So obviously the round ended with her on her back, uh, which obviously I think is a little bit of strategy there to try to win the judges who apparently only remember the last 15 seconds of time. Uh, but you know, you could see in that first round that that Rose has an exciting style, and she throws a lot of spinning shit and flying knees and jump kicks. Uh, I don't know that a ton of it was uh, that effective, but she was she was doing a decent job uh, scoring some points and keeping up with Carla in the in the first round. Uh, I just think kind of in the second and third, Carla was able to kind of keep her down there a little bit more, and then obviously she took her down at the beginning of the third round. Uh, well, she took her down at the very end of the second round and Rose gave up her back and was kind of getting pounded. And you might say she got saved by the bell a little bit. Uh, they come out at the start of the third round. Esparza takes her down again and this time is able to to uh, sink in the choke. Uh, well, see, that's the problem with, you know, your game plan being I will get taken down probably and then I'll get back up. Is that the act of getting back up exposes you, at least momentarily. And so something like that is is you know, on a long enough timeline is bound to happen to you where you're going to find yourself in a bad spot, especially if the person has really good top control and they know how to take advantage of that transition moment. And also just Asparza had an opportunity to kind of just wear her down from the top. You know, the grounded pounds just started getting gradually more and more effective. Like, you know, getting back up off of your back like that can be kind of exhausting. And, you know, you get just a little too slow with it and then you're in, in deep, deep trouble. But again, like, I'm not terribly worried that, like, that's... I think that that for a fighter at Rose Namajunas' point can be a really positive growing experience. Like having somebody show you that that hole in your game, um, that can be like effective in a way that just having somebody tell you about that hole in your game never can be. So I, I still think that she's going to be pretty great. I mean, one of the things I wondered coming out of this was, all right, so we got Carla Sparza as the strawweight champion. Um, who, by the way, I didn't expect to walk out to old school Metallica. Yeah. Cause they put that on right after the, the like, uh, video package of her going out to dinner with her friends. Yeah. And, and it's like, like, all, like they didn't, hoisting like wine, girls not. Yeah. Like, like, like panning clink. out pink presents. Like it didn't seem like a crew of people that is going to rock out to old school Metallica, yeah, but like, like, let's throw on that's just me. for all and just play the whole thing start to finish. I guess that's just me judging a book by its cover yeah. because I was proven wrong. There you go. Chad Unless Colin Oyama picked that music, which would make more sense. <laughs> well, no, the whole thing, like she walks out. Um, looking like, you know, somebody who took a wrong turn, uh, like at, in the, somewhere in the bowels of the arena and is not sure how she got out there, like looks just like kind of terrified and super nervous. They, they put her out there in the cage. Nama Yunus is over there bouncing around from foot to foot. And Carlos Barza is just standing completely still. Like, she, like you just looking at the two of them, you're like, Oh God, one of these people doesn't want to be here. And then as soon as the, the fight starts, that changes. Right. Uh, I kind of dig that. Like, I think that's an interesting, like, switch that, that, that goes on there. I, I do wonder though, especially with the, you know, an emerging division in the, the women's, uh, side of the sport, which kind of needs the help it can get right now. Um, I'm sure the UFC would have preferred if it was Rose Namajunas. She's just way more marketable, uh, and people are, are going to gravitate toward her more. Color Sparza doesn't give you a whole lot necessarily outside the octagon, um, but she is a good fighter. 
I mean, yeah. is that okay for right now? I think that's okay for right now. I, I mean, I don't know how many casual fans you're going to draw in immediately with the strawweight division. It probably needs some time to develop. And as a guy who's contractually obligated to watch all the fights, like I'm not going to complain about Carlos Barza against Double J, Joanna, Yunjechik. I think that that also seems like kind of a fun and interesting fight because, uh, you know, Yunjechik clearly also like Nama Yunus has a good and fun striking style. And the question will be also if she can stop the takedown. So yeah. like, but it's going to be an interesting matchup. Don't you think the UFC is now, you know, they see Carlos Barzo with the belt. Okay. So that's our champion for now. All right. We'll, we'll put her up against the, the next fighter who makes sense. But how do we get Paige Van Zant uh, in there with that belt around her waist? Cause that'd be kind of good for us. Yeah, well, you're going to need to do uh, probably at least one more fight before that happens. Yeah, right? oh, you're going to need to probably do a couple more fights. So we'll just play that play that by ear, I guess. Uh, that's going to do it for round number one. Sir Nigel Longstock's here. He's going to lead us into game of Master Tweet Theater. That starts right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the podcast friend of the show and noted theatricalist Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am full of holiday cheer. Really? You don't strike me as a holiday type, i got to be honest. Well, once I hear from my doctor, it may be parasitic worms, but for now, holiday cheer. All right, let's go with that one. Uh, all right, those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel's going to read us off some tweets from some people in the MMA sphere. Chad and I are going to try and guess who those tweeters are. Is there a theme, Sir Nigel? Yes, sir, there is. The that, you know, the tone in your voice already tells me that there's not. I know. You could see me thinking of one, <laughs> could you not? <clears throat> I need not hide the actor's art when there is no audience to see. Um, but yes, the theme is making the most of the instrument. Chad, why does he do this? I don't know, but the theme leads me to believe that that Phil Baroni tweet with the dick pic is probably included here. <laughs> you know, making the most of the instrument. Come on, let's let's get something out of the way right off the bat. Please, many of you, many of you <laughs> sent me MRIs of Phil Baroni's penile instrument, and frankly. <laughs> First of all, I question whether that is truly the penis Philip Baroni. And second of all, let me tell you about the medium of podcasting. <laughs> You're saying that you don't feel like you could do it justice by just describing it. Thank you for sending me funny pictures. They will not appear on the show. <laughs> well, I guess uh, I guess your dreams are kind of shattered there, Chad. Good thing I did a screen grab. <laughs> Good thing indeed. <laughs> All right, so Nigel, whenever you're ready, hit us with the first one. Mm, yes, grab that screen. <clears throat> Tweet <laughs> the first. I have had a number of people asking me as to what is coming up for me in Australia. So here it is. Facebook link. What the fuck, man? What What are you doing? Well, first of all, last week was a little too hard, so I've made this week a little easier, and I have a clue for you. There are periods of ellipses in this tweet, seven of them. That makes it easier? Wait, read it again. Read it one more time. <clears throat> I've had a number of people asking me as to what is coming up for me in Australia, dot, 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 dot. <laughs> so here it is. Facebook link. Huh. I don't I don't know what the hell and how are you gonna end a tweet with a just Facebook link? All right, uh shit, Rich Franklin. That's actually what I was gonna say. 
Ah, uh, boy. Are we supposed to know who's going to Australia or something? I don't know. They just it's had a fight in Australia. just seems like a tough one. Ah, uh, uh, Randy Couture, the other Rich Franklin. Both fine guesses, both grounded equally in deduction and despair, and both wrong. It is Dan Beast Severin. So, wait a minute. You're telling us that, like, the, a bunch of ellipses, that's, that's Dan Severin's calling card? Well, last time there were also seven periods of ellipses in Dan Severin's inscrutable tweet. All right. Well, I mean, if you'd have told me Dan Severin had a Facebook page before today, I'd have called you a liar. It's a stone-cold liar. Uh, follow-up question. Can we get to the bottom of what was going on with Dan Severn in Australia? We could if we went to Twitter so that we could then go to Facebook. <laughs> God damn you. <clears throat> I assume he is marrying an Australian woman in addition to his How wife. How are supposed to get that one? That one makes no sense. It's the long pause. It's his signature move. <clears throat> Tweet the second. Here we go, Canada tonight. I will be there. Canada love wand. Wand love Canada. I guess that's Vanderlei Silva. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that's Vanderlei Silva. It is. It is Vanderlei Silva coining the phrase Canada love wand for us all to enjoy. <laughs> You're welcome, Canadians. Oh, man. I can't wait to get a little of that Canada love wand. <laughs> Phil Baroni's MRI pales in comparison. <laughs> mm. Tweet the third. Quote, In the great battles of life, the first step to victory is the desire to win. Unquote. Gandhi. Well, that's got to be Rich Franklin, right? I mean, right? Or Randy Couture. All right, well, there we go. Both fine guesses, both wrong. Oh. It is Vitor Belfort. Jesus. Damn it. Vitor Belfort quotes Gandhi. Get out. Come on. Taking a page. And did Gandhi say that? Does he reach for a battle metaphor every time? <laughs> I bet not. <clears throat> Gandhi just loves the militaristic imagery. Vitor Belfort and Gandhi, two peas in a pod. <laughs> One of them hideously swollen and the other Gandhi. <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. Watching There's Something About Mary. Forgot how funny this film is. All right, first of all, I want to break ranks with society and say I don't think that's a funny movie. No, it really is not. Um, second of all, who watches, like, 90s movies and falls in love with them all over again? I'm going to say Joe Benavides. I'm going to go Bisping here because we've we've had tweets in the past from Bisping about stuff he was watching. <laughs> okay. All right. Fine. Both fine guesses, both rooted in pattern recognition, and only one correct. It is Michael Bisping. Yes! Damn it. Yes! If you forget what's funny about the – or if you forget that there is something – eh, I ruined it. What what else does he remember about the film if he forgot that it's funny? <laughs> um. Look, you know you want to do it, so just do your god-awful bisping voice. <clears throat> Watching there's something about Mary. Forgot how funny this film is. Thank you, Ben Stella. Get your penis stuck in a zipper for my amusement. <laughs> that was funnier in the movie. Yes. Right there. Yes, it was. And it took less time. <laughs> <laughs> Tweet the fifth. Ain't nothing worse than a bitch-ass cracker. What? What? I am pronouncing it as written, sir. Um, do, it, do it again. <clears throat> Ain't nothing worse than a bitch-ass cracker. I'm saying Rampage Jackson. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's, that's a good guess. I'm going to go... Uh, 
Rampage Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) Both fine guesses, both eerily similar, and both wrong. It is Phil Baroni. God damn it. Reclaiming the word cracker. (laughs) Thanks, Phil. Man, what a whirlwind this was. Yeah, it's baffling, isn't it? (laughs) I'm just glad it's over. Sir Nigel, what do you got going on? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished wrapping a gripping story about two detectives who try to find a missing Boston girl, but who wind up going to rehab and being accused of murder, respectively. I see, and what's it called? It's called Gone Baby Gone Girl Interrupted, and it's baffling. (laughs) What role do you play? I play the ghost of the protagonist who narrates events from beyond the grave. (laughs) Well, that was Master Treat Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Chad, this is the point in the podcast where I say, you know what, that's it. I'm done. I feel like I've had enough. I'm going to go now. You just, you don't, you want to avoid go. this conversation altogether? Is that, gonna, what I, is that what you're telling me? I'm going to get up and I'm going to go. And then you're going to sit around with Brian Stan and talk about why I left. Because I'm a needle mover, motherfucker. That's what Nate Diaz just did. Now, unfortunately, after Nate Diaz spends all week proving, whether intentionally or otherwise, that he can move the shit out of the needle when he wants to, uh, and especially if he wants to do it by just being a pain in the UFC's ass all the way around, and people will eat it up until they go into the fight on Fox, and he's not even in the main event, and he's the first thing everybody's talking about. But then you kind of got to win the fight, don't you? Or at least you got to look like you are prepared for the fight, and it would be really helpful, especially financially, if you didn't miss weight by like five pounds. I really wanted this to be the fight where Nate Diaz kind of proved to everybody, like, look how much you need me. You got all these new guys in here nobody knows or gives a shit about. You need you some Diaz. Um, but then when he does all this other stuff, you know, and obviously he says afterwards that he was hurt. There's reason to believe him if you look at everything that went on there on, on Saturday night. But, man, it, he he was almost there, wasn't he? First of all, if I could get Brian Stan to come over to my house once a week, you would be out of a podcasting job. You could go do your podcast with Ben Rothwell. Oh, fine. You're we're going to do, do Ben Rothwell. Uh, they already did Fighter and the Kids, so we'll have to come up with a, a snappier name than that. Uh, ben and Ben. Ben, ben Squared? Ben Squared. Yeah, that works. Ben Squared. Pay Thank us. You. Write the checks now. Good luck. Get with in that. on the ground floor. Good luck with that. Uh, so things got real. I mean, things had been weird all week, but things got really weird when Nate Diaz missed weight by more than four pounds because that's something that a Diaz doesn't do. No. Nope. And I think that it was plausible at that point. You could understand why people would think, oh, holy shit, maybe Nate Diaz really is trying to get purposefully cut from the UFC yeah. because which would be kind of an awesome move. Right. It would. Although once I started to go down that road of thinking, I, I started to realize that like in terms of like a nonviolent protest and a work stoppage <laughs> type situation, the fighter is always going to come out on the short end of the stick because you still got to go out there and fight another dude in a cage. Yeah. Right. So you still got to do that. And they're going to take 20% of your money, which is your chief complaint, right? Is money. Right. So after Nate Diaz misses weight and then he comes out for the fight and is standing in his corner, 
uh, not giving the mean mug Diaz glare that we're used to, like looking like he's trying to work up to that, but not quite getting there. He didn't look in bad shape, but he also didn't look in Diaz. I just got done with a triathlon earlier today type shape. Uh, that's when I started to be like, oh man, I think, I think he's injured. Like that's, that was my suspicion. Uh, and then he goes out and I don't know if Nate Diaz beats Rafael Dos Anjos on, on his best day. Probably not. But, Dos Anjos is tough, man. But, you know, he starts to get his leg obliterated by those low kicks and you can just kind of tell by the way he was moving and that he wasn't, uh, his normal high octane, high volume self. There was just something wrong with him, which yeah. is, which isn't to, to, uh, undercut anything that Dos Anjos did. Like, uh, you know, Dos Anjos obviously deserves to be on the short list now with Habib Nurmagomedov and, you know, maybe Donald Cerrone if he beats Miles Jury in January as guys who could be up next for pretty Tony Pettis. Uh, but you know, in terms of, of Nate Diaz, uh, it was really kind of heartbreaking to like, see him have this terrible performance. And then afterward he does the interview with Ariel Hawani on Fox where he admits, you know, yeah, I was injured. Like I had some trouble in my training camp. I couldn't train like I wanted to. I couldn't spar like I wanted to. Clearly, I think we can assume he couldn't cut weight like he wanted to. And I'm the guy who normally says, if you fight, don't tell me later that you're injured. But in this case, like I did find it heartbreaking just because the Diaz brothers don't normally admit that kind of stuff. No. Ever. And they almost always show up to fight. So I feel like with the weird performance that Nate Diaz had and then for him to go on TV and admit that he was injured, he must have been real real injured also doesn't it make you feel weird just in general as a fight fan when the guy you know first of all he'd been complaining about money and wanted to renegotiate his contract the ufc just basically tells him no screw you we'll drop you from the rankings and uh try and you know erase your name uh and then so finally he's compelled to t- come back take a fight it's a tough ass fight i mean especially you know fight against rafael dos Anjos, like there's like probably the toughest dude in the lightweight division who nobody really cares that much about. Like, you know, he, he just doesn't have a ton of fans. So it's one of the, it's, it's the, a really bad combination for Nate Diaz. I mean, if you beat him, yeah, that's big for you, but he's going to be really tough to beat. Uh, and like, it's not like you could get a lot more mileage out of a win over somebody lower down on the ranks, uh, just because of name value. And so then, you know, when he says afterwards that he was injured, but hey, I had to come in here and get paid. Man, that's where it starts to feel a little bit gross, right? Because to think about the dude being like, I don't even want to do this. I wouldn't, I don't want to be here, but I need money. Uh, that's always when it starts to, starts right. to feel like a weird thing that we just witnessed. And frankly, I, I think, feel like it's easy to empathize with that point of view from him because, uh, you know that he feels like he's giving his heart and soul to this sport. You know how hard it is. And frankly, the Diaz brothers have never shied away from telling us how hard it is. Uh, and so it's easy to, to empathize, at least for me, with his feelings that like he's not getting enough back, uh, as compared to what he puts in. And it's hard for him to see, uh, amateurs like CM Punk come in and, and assumedly get paid a lot of money based off only that, you know, that they have a very specific kind of celebrity that the UFC is going to be able to use. Uh, so yeah, for me, like to, to watch that kind of interview from Nate Diaz, uh, it's easy for me to feel his pain in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, and I, I also agree with the fact that like, if you're going to talk about professionalism and, and stuff like that, you do need to make weight. It would help if you won the fight. But at the same time, I think you're right. It's a, it's a weird and unsettling commentary on the sport that this guy who clearly was in no shape to fight, 
uh, just flat out admits afterward that he came and did it because he needed the money. That's weird. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there is like kind of a bitter irony there for him, right? Like to call out the CM Punk thing, to make a point that a lot of other people were making and to do a really good job of making it like to to point out from the fighter's perspective, like, hey, we're working our asses off to be here and to be able to do this. And this guy gets to come in just because, you know, he's popular and people will pay for it. Uh, that's bullshit. And you kind of got to agree with him. Like, yeah, I can see how from your perspective, like from our perspective, you know, maybe it's mildly annoying. From the fighter's perspective, it, it might be just infuriating. This guy's going to come in here and make more money than you. And he doesn't even deserve to be here. But then when you start to look at where Nate Diaz is at right now, you know, he's lost three of his last four. Uh, a lot of the value that Nate Diaz brings right now is that people care about him. Uh, yeah. And they care about him because of his Diaz-ness, because his, you know, like, fuck the world kind of attitude. And because even when he's getting his ass, kick, ass kicked by somebody like uh, Rafael Dos Anjos, he's A, not going to quit, and B, will just straight slap you with an open hand off his back just to be doing something, like, just to just to make something happen. I mean, those are kind of the, the values that he's bringing at this point. And you got to think that's really, honestly... Not a completely different uh, species from what CM Punk is bringing. I mean, you definitely deserve to be here more. You've earned it more. Uh, and you're definitely more of an established fighter. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of the the uh, enduring appeal of the Diaz brothers has to do with the same kind of thing that gets people to think that they'd like to see CM Punk fight. Real quick before we wrap up, Rafael Dos Anjos now eight and one in his last nine fights. He's got the, the loss to Habib Nurmagomedov, but, uh, Nurmi is out still, we think, with, with a, uh, an injured knee. Uh, is this the, the, the fight where Dos Anjos turns the corner and people start to like be able to pick him out of a lineup, uh, because he just beat Nate Diaz and is he the right choice now as number one contender for Anthony Pettis? Well, you'd think that if you just look at what he's done, like people ought to be super excited about him, right? Like he knocked out Benson Henderson, who everybody was sick of seeing him go to these really close decisions. So like you ought to be really excited about that, right? Then he goes out there and puts a whooping on Nate Diaz. Uh, you know, he should be that guy where everybody is, is rallying around him, but he just, he's missing something for us, like personality wise, charisma wise. Obviously he's really, really good. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I see him beating Anthony Pettis and it does seem like it's just going to be one of those fights where like, well, we're doing this one because the one we really wanted to do isn't ready yet, uh, which is never a good spot for you to be in. Uh, all right. Well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And we'll move on uh, to round number two. Uh, ben, even though I'm a, a one of the head senseis of the Dundasso style, I kind of got to send an Are You Fucking Kidding Me? out to uh, Willie Gates this week. Uh, because even though I think what he did was justifiable by the rules, uh, and you know, the referee, I, I believe it was Jason Herzog yes. told John Moraga, I didn't see the low blow. You got to keep fighting. I still think you got to wait till the guy's looking at you before you punch him in the head. <laughs> that's just me though. Like that's just my sensibilities. But I got to say, are you fucking kidding me about that one? Wow. When the father of the Dundasso style is calling you out for unsportsmanlike behavior. I mean, maybe it just speaks to the high level Dundasso because uh, I do acknowledge it as an effective technique. Now, maybe yeah, maybe you're saying he has he has stepped out and the student has become the teacher. It's possible. Perhaps we could just hand it off. <laughs> I can hand off Dundasso and make it uh, Gates. Gates Foo? Gates Foo at this point. Well, that that is that gives us all a lot to think about. Uh, Chad, this week, my are you fucking kidding me? Uh, I'm going to. It's going to be an all announcing based uh, 
show for me in, in this regard. Well, well, good. We're going to get to to later and just saying stuff. But for right now, we're going to focus on your man Joe Rogan, who during the fight between uh, JJ and Claudia Gadelia, uh, there was you know a a cut, a pretty sizable cut, opened up late in the fight. And Mike Goldberg remarks, wow, that's quite a gash. To which Joe Rogan cannot help himself from responding, I don't think you're supposed to say that when it's women fighting. A vagina joke, Chad! He oh, made a boy. vagina joke on Fox Sports 1! Wow. And a, like the grossest one, like gash, like that's like the, like the second grossest term you can use to refer to a vagina. Speaking of people that are trying to get cut. You fucking kidding me, Joe Rogan? I'm gonna throw I out. I get a- that he's a comedian. I'm sure there must be some like, like reflex in him when he hears that and he's like, there's a joke there. There's a joke and he can't help but pounce on it. But oh man, you really ought to try to restrain yourself there. Not only like just because it's like gross, uh, and not funny really, uh, it's also like, yeah, the, the Two female fighters out there just kind of pouring their hearts out and beating each other to a bloody pulp trying to win this damn thing, and we're over here making vagina jokes, man. I'm going to throw out a third Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week because you have not even tried to pronounce Yunjaychuk on this show yet. You just keep saying, JJ, Bless you. you like to make fun of me for, for not being able to say it, to not being able to say the funny names, the hard names, and you over there, you're just... Kind of like thinking we won't notice if you don't say it. Man's got to know his limitations, Chad. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, if you're the kind of guy who likes to watch the big fellas get down, UFC on Fox 13 was your kind of event. Three heavyweight fights on the main card. Matt Mitrione TKO's Gabriel Gonzaga in under, just under two minutes in the first round. Alistair Overeem sprints at Stefan Struve and takes him down like he's a goddamn slingshot on his way to a TKO also in the first round. And in the main event, Junior Dos Santos, who probably has the worst face in the sport in terms of how it looks after he gets punched, nonetheless, uh, rebounds maybe from a couple of tough rounds at the beginning of the fight to beat Stipe Miocic Stipe. by unanimous decision. I guess let's start at the top of the card. I felt like this was a fight where even though uh, Stipe Miocic lost, uh, it was kind of a star turn for him. He proved that he can go out there uh, and hang with some of the top st- top guys in the division, um, even though he slowed down enough toward the end of the fight where Junior Dos Santos was kind of able to edge back ahead. Um, what did you think here of, of the these two heavyweights in our in our main event on the Fox network. I was honestly really surprised at Stipe. I did not think that uh, he was going to win that kind of a fight. I thought he'd have to stay away from Dos Santos a lot more. Uh, he really proved that he has a hell of a chin, man, because he took some shots from Junior Dos Santos there. And we kind of knew that about Junior Dos Santos, right? That he can take a shot and keep on coming. Like you said, his face does turn into like a deformed water balloon uh, as soon as he's taken a few punches. Um, but with with Miosic, the thing was, we knew, you know, he's he's got good boxing, but he didn't seem to have that just overwhelming power that Dos Santos does have. And he was taking shots from him and just shrugging him off, just really acting like nothing at all had happened, which I think really usually helps you with the judges. I was kind of surprised that he didn't get this decision. And, uh, you know, I, I can't really argue too 
too fiercely in either direction because it was such a close fight. But, you know, you could see the the anger and the, the disgust on his face when the decision was read. And I can't really blame him for that. You know, he fought a hell of a fight out there. Yeah, and he could have gotten the decision, I feel like, just as easily as, as Junior Dos Santos did. Um, I still think he comes out of it in, in pretty good shape in terms of his standing in the division. Um, you know, you look around the, the reactions to the fight, and even though Junior Dos Santos won, I feel like a lot of people come out of this worried about him yeah. and kind of excited about Stipe Miocic. So, like, uh, you know, kind of a double-edged sword for both these guys. Yeah, I mean, worrying about Junior Dos Santos here seems appropriate because – you know, this is another one where he's been in just a five-round fight where he gets battered around a lot. And he won this one, uh, you know, lost the ones against Cain Velasquez, didn't exactly come out unscathed against Mark Hunt. you got to wonder, you know, if that's not worse for his long-term prospects career-wise uh, than it would be, you know, if he got knocked out by one punch in the first round. Because he ended up taking a lot of damage in that fight just because of how long it went and and the kind of fight it was. I mean, on one hand, it's incredible to watch. Like, you know, watching that one several times, I was just like, wow, I can't believe that this is happening. I can't believe it's still happening. Uh, but how many of those can you really do? Especially when you're in Junior DeSantos' position where, you know, even when Dana White says, I think Junior DeSantos deserved that decision, but no, I don't want to see... Dos Santos Velasquez four. Yeah, you're in a tough situation if you're junior. Well, you're in a tough situation if if you're any real top contender in the heavyweight division, uh, just because we're seemingly stuck in this perennial holding pattern where Velasquez is rehabbing from an injury, and so we're all kind of waiting to see if he can get back in a timely fashion because we know that the UFC still wants to do uh, Velasquez against Fabricio Verdum uh, to to unify the reunify the title with the interim champ and the regular champ and they want to do it in mexico like they were supposed to do uh you know for their for their first meeting uh probably the best thing that could happen to junior dos santos is that it turns out kane can't come back as scheduled and the ufc is forced to strip him and make verdum the outright champion because then you know you've got a natural rematch on your hands since junior dos santos uh beat verdum i think it was junior dos santos's debut right ufc yeah. debut and uh it was a fight back in uh 2008 or 2009 that ended up ending Fabricio Verdum's first UFC run. He had to go out and 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 fight elsewhere uh, and kind of rehabilitate himself to come back to the UFC as this guy who now has captured the interim title. So, uh, uh, you know, you got a natural fight there if, if it turns out to be Junior versus Verdum for the title. Like we said last week, if you can't do that, I feel like Junior Dos Santos against Travis Brown is your obvious uh, uh, place to go. I wouldn't complain about that one for a minute. I mean, I would think that you know, hey, maybe uh, Bear Doom blows away Cain Velasquez. Maybe he goes out there and submits him or yeah, something. that's also uh, a possibility. And then, you know, if you're Junior Dos Santos, then, you know, you, you can make your case for another shot at the title. The problem is, like, you know, if you're the UFC, I guess, like, okay, if we put Travis Brown up against Junior Dos Santos and Dos Santos wins, does that change anything for you? Are you then, you know, say Velasquez keeps his belt, are you then more interested in seeing a Cain Velasquez Junior Dos Santos four? Well, I mean, if Junior Dos Santos keeps winning, I don't know that you have any other, you know, a ton of other uh, opportunities or, or ways to go just because the heavyweight division kind of needs all of these top contenders, needs all that it can that, that, that it can get. It's not the deepest division out there and uh, a great deal, a big percentage of the of the division is aging. And in, in fact, coming out of this event, we were talking about Brendan Schaub and, and Joe Rogan having that conversation where uh, Rogan kind of, uh, you know, was was. Uh, encouraging Brendan Schaub to think about his future in the sport. And it kind of dawned on us during this event 
Like you could say that to a lot of guys in this yeah. division because you know on the same card, one of the youngest guys in the division, Stefan Struve, he loses to Alistair Overeem, and this is also sort of his comeback fight after it's been revealed that he has his congenital heart heart disorder. Uh, and his previous comeback fight had to get scrapped because he passed out backstage. Then he gets TKO'd in the first round by Overeem. Like you know, there's a fair amount of guys in this in this division that you could make the case uh, that that you know they might want to think about the future yeah well and that was danny downs and i talked about that this week in, in our trading shots thing but uh yeah because you do start to look around and be like wait a minute if we can make that case to shop we can make it to a lot of people it's like should everybody but the top five heavyweights just quit like that's kind of a it's a weird thing to, to admit about that about the sport when you say something like that uh because you know, like, like Struve, like, what are you saying is the real difference between Schaub and Struve at that point? That, hey, Schaub is better looking and funnier and smarter and can, can talk better. And so, hey, he has options outside the cage where Stefan Struve, I guess, hell, you might as well keep doing this because, you know, what else can you do? Like that, that's even more depressing if that's what you're saying. And I don't necessarily know that that is the, where, uh, Rogan would go with that, uh, if you want to expand that argument. But, you know, it, it is one of those things where, I feel like we get, we see it really short sightedly if we're just like, Hey, wait a minute. We just figured out we don't think you're going to be champion. Therefore you should quit. Uh, cause I like they just can't allow themselves to see it that way. Right. Like, and for good reason. I mean, you'd, you'd never get that far if that's the way you saw it. Like imagine if you were sitting around going like, well, if I can be the greatest writer of all time, then I'll do it. But if I fall anywhere between two and like, 1300 then screw it it's not worth it like you just you can't think that way in your career field and now obviously with fighters there are like a little bit more severe consequences for them uh but at the same time you know it's just becomes kind of a, a an unsustainable view to just be like are you the best are you about to be the best no quit go do something else well, at least you have some interesting possibilities now in the heavyweight division, which, as I said a minute ago, is kind of a division that needs all the help it can get. Uh, you could put Matt Mitrione against uh, Stipe Miocic. You could put Matt Mitrione against Overeem. You got the resurgent Todd Duffy who could fight any of those guys. Uh, a rematch with Overeem actually might be kind of interesting considering how their first fight went when I believe Todd Duffy had to sneak into Japan yeah. in order to get knocked out in like notice, yeah. 18 seconds. Now, there you go. Todd Duffy and Overeem. Do that one again. Let's just see. Let's see where, where each, the, how the journey each man has been on has affected him since then. So yeah, things are looking up a little bit in the heavyweight division. Uh, you know, it doesn't take much to make you feel like the heavyweight division is uh, better than it's been in a while. But let's do uh, just saying stuff. Then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff this week? Well, you know, I devoted my "Are you fucking kidding me?" to Rogan. So now I got to turn and look at his broadcast partner. Mike Goldberg, who, uh, before this fight, the UFC on Fox 13, uh, was talking about Stipe Miosic, trying to, trying to pump him up a little bit on the broadcast, get people excited about it, talking about what a, what a great athlete he is and all the other sports he's excelled in. And in so doing, Goldberg mentioned Stipe Miosic's college baseball batting average, which was 340, by the way. Speaks to accuracy. Uh, now I'm just saying, they wouldn't mention a dude's college baseball batting average 
on a baseball broadcast. They would consider that irrelevant. And they've got hours of nothingness to fill on a baseball broadcast. And they still would think, you know, that probably the college baseball batting average, the batting average you had with like aluminum bats against the off-brand pitchers who decided to go to college instead of, you know, going to the majors right out of high school or going and playing in the minors. That doesn't really have much bearing here on this actual baseball game. So it definitely doesn't have any bearing on this heavyweight prize fight. I'm just saying. Just saying. Ben, this week I'm just saying, you know what's awesome? What? Starting the UFC at 6 o'clock and wrapping that shit up with WWE 2K14 commercials and all before 8.30. Because I still got to write my story, and I don't know, man, maybe I got a Christmas party I'm trying to go to. Thank you, Fox. Thank you, UFC. Give me more of that shit, please. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. We'll be back next week to tell you who wins the fight between Lyoto Machida and Clarence Byron Dollaway the fourth. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. We just snuck Todd Duffy into Japan in a crate full of bananas or like uh, a big old bag he's like buried up to his neck in coffee grounds somehow they got him through customs so the dogs wouldn't smell or they put him in like a like a gorilla costume